Blog Talk Radio. of 
how to live with this disease. Um, it allows people to make it feel like it's more normal, more common, and they're more likely to reach out. So, again, I want to thank you for helping us um, spread the word because through your shares, we were named the number one influencer online by ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And ShareCare, if you're not familiar with that, is the largest health and wellness um, organization in the world. And they have just tons of, of experts um, on so many different categories and, and lots and lots of re resources. Uh, today now you can participate in the show by utilizing the chat box Um or you can also call in live to the show. And the show uh, phone number is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. Now, before I introduce our first guest, I want to um, highlight a couple of things for you. Um, if you missed our last radio show, we had... Carolyn Rosenblatt on, who is the author of The Family Guide to Aging, along with her husband, Dr. Nicole um, Davis, who is a clinical psychologist. We had a really interesting conversation about a variety of issues and legal competency and decision-making and, and how to make life the best for those dealing with dementia. Our next show next week is going to be with Kathy Brogy on Building Dementia-Friendly Communities, and she has launched the Purple Cities Initiative, which will be a really fun conversation. Keep in mind, all of our shows are archived, so you can listen to them anytime if you're not able to listen to them live. I also wanted to point out on the blog... Um, I did a post on the 5th um, regarding the SAGE test, which many people might want to check out. And SAGE stands for Self-Administered Jerry Cognitive Exam. And you can actually download four examples of this test to self-administer if you have concerns. Um, or if you just want to monitor your cognition, it's not a diagnosis, but it will alert you if you should uh, maybe go in and, and see a physician or a neurologist with that. Uh, the other article I wanted to um, just tell you about was posted on the 4th, and that was uh, titled Brilliant and Bold Commentary Regarding People with Dementia by uh, Elon Caspi. And he was commentating um, or commenting regarding an article, which was just a great article done by the Washington Post, titled More People with Alzheimer's Are Becoming Activists, Which Can Bring Its Own Challenges. And it really is about um, how we help these people give voice. And yet there was uh, one individual, Michael Ellen Bogan, who is now basically, they've severed NAPA, our National Alzheimer's Plan Act, and the Alzheimer's Association has severed ties with him and considered him a security risk because of something he said. And, you know, the question posed is if somebody who didn't have dementia made that comment, would they still be a security risk? So some really um, thought-provoking things that you, you may want to look at. Um, I also like to always just do a shout-out to a few organizations that I think are really critical that people um, know about. The first one is Alzheimer's Disease International. Alzheimer's Disease International is the association of all associations around the world. So if you are looking for some assistance, you can easily um, go to uh, ADI or Alzheimer's uh, 
a disease international and not only find who is closest to you, but you will also find um, global information and networking, which is, is wonderful. Um, the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation has information that, that's more holistic. So if you are looking for information on diet and meditation and exercise, they have some great information and some free educational um, programs that they provide. If you're dealing with specific dementias like Lewy body or frontal temporal lobe or if you're having speech issues, you're going to want to go to the National Aphasia Association. So you know, check out those three specifics, the Lewy Body Dementia Association and the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration and then the National Aphasia Association. Um, there is also on Alzheimer's Speaks um, homepage, there is a survey that you can partake in and it is uh, pulled together by the Dementia Action Alliance. There is one for people with dementia and we really need more people with dementia to complete that survey. Um, it takes about 10 minutes, but it's, it's, it's pretty easy to go through. And we also have one, uh, you can go to the same link and it'll bring you to two different ones. There's one for the person with dementia and there's one for uh, care partners. Um, or caregivers, and we're trying to collect national data here in the U.S. Um, to figure out what, what resources are needed and what is the best way uh, for people to access them. Um, I am also going to do a shout-out to HealthStar Home Health, which is here in my neck of the woods. If you're looking for a home care agency, they are absolutely fabulous. They not only are trained as Alzheimer's whispers, but they work with their families in terms of helping um, disseminate information and tips and tools to, to ease their process while caring at home as well. Uh, if you are a... Um, person with dementia who is willing to work in a clinical trial um, and get involved, again, you can go to our homepage and there you can click right on it. There's a, a self-survey or kind of test that will tell you if you will fit the gamut for that. But you can really help advance research. Um, and if you are a caregiver, you can help your loved one get enrolled in a clinical trial today. It really will help families uh, battle this disease in the future and reshape treatments. And there is no cost for that as well. And um, two more things I'm going to shout out to is uh, Pieces of the Past, which is a, a great adult um, puzzle, and they use portrait puzzles. Um, but check out Pieces of the Past. Um, and to do that, just go to www.portraitpuzzle.com. Really very, very cool. You can personalize them, and I, I think that this could be a lot, a lot of fun. If you are not a Purple Angel yet, you might want to check that out as well. The Purple Angel Project, you can just go to Alzheimer's Speaks About page to get more information on that. And, um, you know, that's our new global symbol uh, for dementia. It's in over 17 countries. It costs no money, takes very little time for you to be part of. So let me go ahead and introduce our first guest. Again, I'm very excited about having her with us today. Uh, her name is Mary Crescenzo, 
and that's a Z-O at the end. And she's the founder of the ABC Approach to Alzheimer's Awareness and Care Through the Arts, um, which provides professional development and training for staff in the implementation of quality arts. So not just busy work, um, but really programming for those with, with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, um, works with um, facilities um, and faculty for caregivers, um, both professional and personal, um, creative writing workshops to address their connection to the disease, um, through the literary arts, which is really cool. And Mary is also an award-winning playwright whose drama, Planet A, about Alzheimer's, has been staged in New York and um, throughout the U.S. In addition, she's a master arts um, instructor, lecturer, and um, curriculum development uh, developer for Lifetime Arts which is a, a national organization that brings uh, quality arts programs to older adults. So welcome to the show today, Mary. I'm excited to have you on. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Lori, for having me with you. Well, good. It's uh, it's very fun to have you with us. Um, I'm excited uh, for you to share all that you're doing. You know, and that's one of the things we love doing here on Alzheimer Speaks is letting other people's voices be heard. Because, you know, when you're excited about something, it it can spark ideas with others in terms of you know, how can they take their talents and, and their skill sets and their passions and, and help others in the world. And so very, very fun. Before I get um, started kind of on my line of questions, I always like to ask um, my guests, because it's good for our listeners to know, have you been personally touched by um, Alzheimer's or dementia with family or friends? Um, I actually had an aunt who had it and also a cousin. Um, and it, that's not what began my work with Alzheimer's patients or persons with Alzheimer's. But, uh, yes, I have been in those two cases. Hasn't okay. everyone, doesn't everyone know someone, if you, you think know, about it, who has it, the disease? It's pretty amazing. You know, when I go out and speak, I ask about... Oh, seven or eight questions, and I'll have everybody stand up. And as I ask, you know, have you been touched by this, you know, this category or this category? And I can talk to typically a thousand people, and I might, I might have five people standing at the end that haven't mm-hmm. been yes. personally touched. I mean, it's and people look around and they are shocked. They're just shocked because we still aren't having the conversation we need to have, you know, to bring this out into the open. And right. so, yeah. Um, really, really good point that that most people have been. Well, why don't you ex- start out by explaining to us what the ABC approach is to your work with the arts and Alzheimer's and dementia? I'd be happy to. Uh, the A part of it is Alzheimer's on stage, and I incorporate a play that I wrote, Planet A, to work as um, an awareness tool and also, in some cases, uh, a way for an organization to present it and use it as a fundraising tool as well. Uh, the play is about persons with the disease, their family, etc., and it's a series of monologues and some scenes that present uh, the inner voices of everyone involved 
to uh, the audience. And there is a um, an arc, a story of one person, Pauline, but by the end I hope and I believe that there is dignity shed on to the lives of those with Alzheimer's and all of those around them. Um, and so it's a drama, but it does have comic relief. And we usually have, um, at the end, a Q&A with an Alzheimer's professional, and I join them. So that's one aspect of it. B is bringing watercolor music, dance, and movement to those with Alzheimer's to enhance their socialization, their mobilization, self-expression, and quality of life through training that I will impart in my workshops to care workers who work with persons with Alzheimer's. Very often I uh, find that the people who work with those with Alzheimer's, from doctors to caregivers, personal and professional, that they themselves have um, a little fear of art in a sense, maybe for themselves. Maybe some time ago, and I hear this often, people will say, oh, someone told me I can't draw, someone told me I can't sing. And first of all, I want to make everyone know that everyone is creative. And so once I can help them release that fear in these professional workshops, then they can actually do the art program that I I have formed that works well with those with Alzheimer's. And then they feel comfortable. And if they feel comfortable, then I can give them the tools when they are with those with Alzheimer's and family members to implement, whether it's watercolor, singing, movement. And I like them to, uh, when they feel confident, to participate with those they're working with. When the families come and visit, have them participate. It is an incredible experience um, and for everyone. And when everyone feels comfortable, then um, there's that freedom of that creative spirit that we all have. And then the C part of it is creative writing as a coping strategy for Alzheimer's professionals, support, support staff, and personal caregivers through open-ended exercises and discussion. What we do is we use various forms of writing, whether it's poetry, fiction, essay, and we create a safe, creative space to process their intense experience. Um, I know that this began uh, for myself when I was in the 90s doing an arts program called Drawing on Memories, and I can tell you a little bit about that later. That was designed by Mel Lee, who was an artist, and I didn't know much when I began before my training about the disease and even if I studied, you know, everything about it, that experience, you know, on hand in the midst of this is really where I learned so much of what I learned. Um and so I would go home at night and I I didn't know how to to process my experience. So I am a writer and I began writing. And I started writing in the voice of the people I met, things they said to me, things I imagined they were thinking. And those persona poems then led to the play, Planet A. But when those who uh, work with Alzheimer's, patients, patients, persons with Alzheimer's, I remember I have to say that right, it's persons with Alzheimer's disease, um, they come together and they're, I use open-ended exercises and they say, I'm having that feeling, too. I'm confused in that way, too. My heart is breaking this way as well. I'm not alone. And we sit in a circle. 
We write, we read, and we share. And this family members who are caregivers, as well as professionals, can can find this way to process what happens in the wonderful work that they do. So that's the ABC of all of this. And um and it works. It works. Cool. When did you when did you start working with, with this population? I was living in uh Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm I am a New Yorker, which I'm I live where I live now. But um a friend of mine, Mel Lee, who is also a fellow artist, father had Alzheimer's. And Mel could no longer communicate with his father. His father didn't speak, and he was at a point where he couldn't. He wanted to be able to communicate with him, but nothing was working. So he thought, well, okay, what do I know? What do I know best? I know art. So he began putting a watercolor paper in front of his dad with brushes and paints and kind of just guided his hand, and then he started painting before you know it, his father was painting with him. And whether it's abstract or it's representational does not matter. They were communicating through art. So what he did was expand this. He connected with the Alzheimer's Association in Tulsa, began training artists like me. And then he, but before he trained me, I saw an exhibit. He told me, come to this exhibit. We have work that I've done with patients. And I was just shocked. I said, this is amazing. It was just everything that art is and can be. So I said, I need to be part of this. And so he trained me, and I began doing watercolor in different facilities, very different facilities in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. And then I decided to expand it to music and movement. And it was all inspired by a gentleman who um, had previously been a violinist and was painting. And when I put classical music on, he moved his hand his arm, as if he was moving his bow. And I thought, there's got to be more to this. And this was about mid-90s. So I started playing music. It was almost like karaoke. I started to pass around the microphone, and I used music from their period of their youth, of their, you know, their years when they were mm-hmm. younger. And they were singing. People that would be walking around the room saying nothing even screaming, sitting, doing nothing, would get up and sing. I had one man who started doing the foxtrot. Oh, wow. So we were like, yes, okay, so this this is working. And then, the, again, I explained the creative writing aspect, how I decided to expand it to the caregivers themselves. And that's that's how it started. Wow, wow. It's amazing how something so simple and innocent just um, can get this steamroller engine, um, you know, when the passion hits, when you see the change um, and the significance in in the work and the pleasure that it brings to people and the peacefulness. It's just it's very exciting, very exciting. Um, Absolutely. So I think you took the initiative to, to expand that and and see what's going on. I'm going to pull in, I think Harry Urban is here, and Harry's living with dementia and my guess is is that he's probably really excited about what all you are saying. So I'd just like to get his comments, if you don't mind. Oh, great. Um, Hi, Harry. Let's see if I can pull in. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Hi, Harry. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. Hi, Harry. So Hello. Was, How are was, you? I was oh, envisioning you just kind of bubbling in the background with excitement in terms of what you're hearing. <laughs> 
her her saying and and her approach. What are your what are your thoughts? Maybe I'm wrong on on what I'm I'm visualizing here, but I just thought there would be a big smile on your face. I think I think you're missing a point on one thing though. Um, okay. The 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 program is wonderful, but it's not limited to Alzheimer's. I think no, you're absolutely with, right. I think anybody with any kind of form of dementia uh, could benefit from this program. I mean, it, it, it's exciting. Uh, I was I was in a conversation with uh, with an artist one time, and uh, we played the game of Harry. Look at this painting and tell me what you see. And what I saw was in more detail than almost anybody else. You know, my mm-hmm. I saw a story in the painting. And, you know, Absolutely. people just saw maybe, a, maybe they saw a boat floating on a pond or something. But I saw a story that, that went with the painting. And, uh, and you were so right. The arts is so important. Thank you, thank you. And I, I totally agree with you, Harry. This is not just for persons with Alzheimer's. This can be expanded and is expanded to people with dementia. Uh, people who, anyone, 55 plus, I do a program with people who are well, um, and we do these types of things. Anyone can do this from any age. And I love that you brought up the aspect of um, observing art, not just making art and speaking about it, and finding stories, which creates conversation. As you probably know, there's a program at the Metropolitan Museum, uh, not the Metropolitan, it's actually the Modern Museum of Art, where persons with Alzheimer's are brought in to look at the paintings and, and do exactly what you did. And the expansion of art in all of our lives is so important. So I, your point is well taken. This can work with so many different people can work with everyone. Thank you, Harry, for expressing that about about your work with looking at a painting and how it inspired yeah. you. Yeah, and I, I think it's a, a great point, the expansion into all dimensions, but, uh, you know, I, I like what you said, too, Mary, is, is this works for anybody, and, and to me that's one of the, the biggest um, and most significant things that need to change about how we deal with this disease is looking at the commonalities you know, that we share. And, you know, art art in all formats is something that we all share, no matter who we are, no matter what age we are, no matter what we're dealing with. It impacts our lives, and we all interpret it different. And that's the beauty of it. Absolutely. um, And I I do want to clarify something. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go go ahead. ahead. Okay, I apologize. I I do want to clarify, though, working with persons with Alzheimer's or dementia, there are certain techniques that work better. You wouldn't want to use crayons. You wouldn't want to use uh, oil paints. But watercolors work quickly and easily. You want to, for example, not have a round palette with paint because it appears like a plate with food. So you need to create square palettes. There are certain very particular things that work best within the arts tailoring it to certain populations. So, uh, you know, I do want to express that, and that's why I feel that when I speak with uh, those who work with Alzheimer's that I can impart that to them, because what we're looking for is process, of course, 
but we are looking for success, not success in the product, but that the functioning of the person using art can be as expanded as possible when you examine what kinds of things work better with different populations. Very good point, very good point, because uh, different techniques need to be used at, at different times. Um, so, yeah, wonderful. Can you can you explain to our audience um, what your goals are for the play Planet A um, and, you know, which is the drama about Alzheimer's, and, and can you give us, any more kind of tidbits about it itself so that people will have certainly. a better idea? Well, certainly I can. Um, I have two uh, parallel goals. Uh, one is an ultimate goal and one is an ongoing goal. And my ultimate goal is to have the play staged on Broadway with famous actors in the roles who have family members with Alzheimer's. And as you know, there are so many persons that we recognize in entertainment, sports, etc. fields who, who parents or family members have this disease and who have taken an active part in expressing awareness and, and helping with funding. But I would love to see that as a benefit, perhaps, for various organizations, but to get it out there because it is a timely issue. And I was watching the Tonys the other night, and um, I saw there were different timely topics about things in our in our world today, and I thought, okay, this needs to be up there because the more awareness we have, the more understanding and um and just understanding that that we have. So that's my main that's my ultimate goal. But my ongoing goal is to bring the play to various cities throughout the world. Um it's been in Colorado, it's been in Texas, it's been in various locations in New York and to present it as a theatrical event but also as an awareness tool. And as I said, organizations have um have have asked me to do this and, and have the play staged. And then um, it can be ticket sales can be, portion of the ticket sales can be benefit for the Alzheimer's organization of various sorts that it is. So, but more importantly, if you see something on stage, you can sit back and um, kind of feel separated in a way. So it feels it feels comfortable and yet you can recognize yourself um, and those you love in the play. And um, I think we can recognize ourselves with this play just as humans and how we struggle with various things in our life. So that's my goal for the play is to bring it out there wherever it can go and, again, create that awareness and understanding. So there's not that fear. There's not that um, that shadow I, you know, around the disease. Let's have the conversation, and I think art can help make that conversation happen. Well, and I like that you had mentioned before that you also do kind of a talk back after, um, yes. after the play. And can you can you explain to people what a talk back is? Because I don't think a lot of people know. Sure. Uh, but I think they're just so powerful. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, a talk back is when they turn the lights up in the theater before you leave, and they have a question and answer on the stage with the playwright sometimes the actors, and we bring in an Alzheimer's professional who can help answer questions from the audience that I perhaps cannot answer, the cast can't answer. And it's a kind of connection where those in the audience can say, instead of walking out with questions and thoughts and um, not sure where to take these things, it's this 
bouncing back of questions and answers that really, I think, uh, helps to understand not just the play, but more importantly, the disease itself. And I, I, this began because the very first time I did the show in a very tiny, tiny little theater in New York, it was dark, and I'm in the audience, and people are leaving weeping. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I can't let them leave like that. We need to talk about this. And so we began doing the Q&A. And I think it's been it's been wonderful. Um, so that's what that's about. And um, I think it's important. I think it's important. People leave saying, I'm so glad you did that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm glad I did too. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've been involved with a few of them. And it's just amazing the stories that come out of people and the comfort level and um, sometimes in theaters we've we've had to like okay we we have to break now we you know we we got to get out of here they're pushing us out the door right. and people really and once they start opening up they they just want to continue to connect and exactly it's and it's not to stuff. say that the play is so sad and so da- it it has of course it is the reality but it also has a hope a brightness to it and an understanding. So, um, I, you know, I just want to say that as well because you, you, when you leave, it, you leave touched, but you also leave with hope, and mm-hmm. that's another part of this. It's important. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Well, neat. I, I would like to see more talkbacks, um, even with the the films and stuff that are out. And oh yeah, I, I know it's we do so much lecturing. Um, and and presuming that we know, and then we just kind of let everybody walk off. But it it really is in the nuts and the bolts of the conversation where things right. change. And when we did yeah. this, um, you reminded me when I did this with the New York City Alzheimer's Association, we had a sold out performance. People came from the outside, came in. Also, the staff was there, and we also had persons with early stages of Alzheimer's in the audience who, at the end, asked questions and were responding, and who could. Who better than they to express how what they saw reflected? So that's always encouraged, of course. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Now, now you also do professional development workshops with those um, who work with with people who are diagnosed. Can you kind of illustrate how how the creative writing can benefit, and exactly what do you what do you do with them? Is it all writing, or is it other? other platforms of art as well. Well, um, let me see if I can clarify. The professional workshop developments are for the care work, the, the workers who staff or on staff and work with persons with Alzheimer's. And I train them to use specific techniques to, um, to work with the art and the movement and the music with the persons with Alzheimer's. But the creative writing aspects of that is to, um, I can have, for example, a group of doctors, a group of nurses, a group of uh, uh, professional aides in the setting, uh, social workers, who will come and they will be doing creative writing in terms of uh, their own experience and how it benefits the participants in the in the group, these people. I think, again, it helps to process their intense feelings about the work they do and we use poetry essay fiction um and and also just use techniques so they can sustain this and what i mean by that is they can go home and now whenever they come home and they're really tired or frustrated or some some question about 
you know, the frustration of it all, they can sit down and they can write. And in those creative writing workshops, uh, as professional development for coping strategies with dealing with Alzheimer's, you then develop the skills that you can pull out the pen a lot quicker, feel a lot more confident, and just write about what's going on with you and then share it with others. So I hope that answers your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think okay. I, I think writing is so powerful and so, it, you know, it intimidates so many people in terms of the process. How do you how do you get over that intimidation? Or maybe you don't run across it, but I, I run across that a lot with people. Oh, I run uh, across it all the time. I, I run across it all the time. It's because at one point in their life, uh, someone told them they couldn't write, they couldn't sing, they couldn't do art. Also, if arts were in the schools, as as prevalent as everything else, it would feel like something normal. It would feel like something that we all can do. And, you know, people often, when I, I was an art teacher at one time, and I noticed that teachers would hold up only the quote-unquote good work by the kids who were gifted by their birth. And I, would, I said, I'm never going to do that. So I'd hold up all the work. I said, everybody hold up your work, and I try to make something positive uh, in a response to each of them. So it can be intimidating, but the thing that proves to me that we all have this spirit is I have worked from kindergartners to Alzheimer's, different economic groups, different cultural groups, and everyone has the common denominator of creativity because I've seen it in their work. If they feel safe, if they feel not judged, they will, people can make art. They make art, mm-hmm. and they do. Yep. Um, there was something else I was going to mention. Oh, go ahead. No, that's, uh, that's I forgot what it was. Okay. Just, I was just thinking about um, just what I had mentioned before, about there are certain techniques that, that work better, and once you learn them, oh, okay. I want to talk to people who are listening. I want to talk to you if you... Um, if you're a family member and you, you bring and you're sitting down with your family member who has Alzheimer's, take out that piece of paper, get out a, a marker, a magic marker, take out some watercolor. It doesn't matter that you haven't been trained in it. Just start doing something. Bring your children and the grandchildren of that person in your family with Alzheimer's to sit around the table. They'll be more freer than you, believe me, when it comes to art, because kids are, like, ready to do it. Whereas Alzheimer's persons, persons with Alzheimer's, as you know, the inhibitions often go away, and they don't feel intimidated not to paint. So it's try this with them. Put on music and sing those songs with them and make it a family event. And don't talk about anything, about nothing except this is fun. I like doing this. Don't even ask them what they're drawing. Don't say, what is this? Even I'm intimidated if I'm making something and someone says, what is this? Say, tell me about this painting. Give it a title. I have had the most profound titles of works of patients with Alzheimer's who've painted for me. I say, what is that? They'll say something, and this nugget of truth will come out. As you know when you work with persons with Alzheimer's, they will say something you're not sure about, and then suddenly, boom, they will hit you with a philosophical truth, and you'll go, wow. You know, it's all about the dance. We are following. Persons with Alzheimer's and dementia are leading. Follow them in what they say and what they do, 
and in their art expression. Let them take the lead. Trust yep, that. Fair. Very cool. I'm going to pull Harry in and just see what his thoughts are um, on that philosophy. Harry, I hope you don't mind yes. me pulling you in again. Oh, no. Uh, no, I so. So what are your thoughts on, on um, Mary's approach, you know, about let the person with Alzheimer's take the lead. Let them, you know, feel comfortable in this mode and, and appreciate what they're doing and, and where they're at and kind of learning from them. Well, I I just went through I just went through a uh, uh, a woman asked me, Harry, do you write your own post? Uh, she was she was flabbergasted that I was diagnosed with Alzheimer's eleven years ago, and I could still write a sentence, I could still form my own thoughts, and she just assumed that somebody was writing for me. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it's funny because so many people came to my defense and I wasn't, I wasn't offended at all by her question because it was an honest question of somebody that is ignorant of the disease. Uh, mm-hmm. they, didn't, they didn't know that, that we, can do, we can do things. I always say, if you want to see what I see, give me a camera. Let me take pictures mm-hmm. and you look at the pictures. Then you see what I see. Uh, it's the same thing that uh, I may not be an artist. I may not be able to paint things, but I can appreciate looking at paintings. Yeah. You know, and I can, and I can tell you what they are. I may not be able to paint them, but I can appreciate looking at them. Such good points there, Harry. And you reminded me of um, when you mentioned about your your blog, which I'm guessing you have a blog, and I'm definitely going to go sign up for it. Um, that different different stages of Alzheimer's ref- can reflect different forms of art forms that work better. I mean, you can be a writer, you can write poetry, you can write a blog. Maybe in a different stage, you can use a different form of art. But you, I, you're, you're so generous to say it's just the ignorance of those who don't understand, and, and that's why the education is so important. Definitely so. Very, um, just really interesting and great work that you're you're doing, Mary. Can you tell okay. us um, a little bit more about other work with older adults? And, and the arts, you know, that that you're doing as well. Yes, I'd be I'd be happy to. Um, I also want to give make a little shout out. I hope she's listening to uh, Trin Rose Seely. Uh, I know you know her. Um, oh, she she is she is someone who also she is the person who introduced me to you. And I had met her when uh, I did my play in Colorado, and she was the special events coordinator for Alzheimer's Association. And she has opened up my eyes to so many different organizations, so I want to thank her for having me on the show through you. So, I mean, having, you know what I mean? She referred me, so I so appreciate that. But work with older adults, yes. Um, I do it independently as well as through Lifetime Arts. I'm now working at an adult day center. It's called Sunshine Day Center in Peekskill, New York. And we do, um, and most everyone is 55 plus. Uh, some have different physical challenges. Uh, they they do not have dementia, 
but uh, some have physical challenges, some do not. But we do uh, similar things. We do painting, we do singing, we do creative writing, we do movement, um, and we do it as an equal group. When you come together, it's a common denominator, and even though I'm the quote-unquote teacher, I'm part of it. I'm doing it, too. I'm singing. I'm doing all these things. Um, and with Lifetime Arts, there are library programs. Uh, they're a national organization, and um, there are library programs free to the public for those 55-plus who wish to um, come in and do quality art programs. And when I say quality art, I'll tell you what I mean. I've been in too many in the past, and this is certainly not every place, but I have entered these types of facilities, and I have seen people gluing macaroni to a paper plate. I have seen them doing mm -hmm. things, stringing things, where their dexterity is not, is, doesn't fit that activity. And I've been told by, and again, this is no strike against activity directors, it's because they work hard and do a great job, but without, um, without, I think without training by teaching community artists to help them find greater directions and depth, more depth with quality arts, the, this stuff is only going to bore everybody. It's going to bore you. It's going to bore me. And so then there's people in front of the TV and like, let's just get into some creative sense. Um, and so... When I, when, when I say quality arts, it's the kind of art that you can sustain it. When I leave, when the 10-week program is over, say, for example, in the library, you can go home and start painting yourself. You can write yourself. And I hear what Harry says, though, oh, maybe I can't paint, and he feels as like he's a better observer. I can tell he's a great observer. But you don't have to be a quality, fine artist. You just have to try it. Just try something different. So um, I work with well older adults, frail older adults, persons with uh, physical needs, and persons with uh, Alzheimer's. But again, my mission as an artist is to bring art to unlikely places and to have it become such a common thing that everyone feels excited, a little, a little nervous, but comfortable enough to say, I can try that. I love that phrase, art to unlikely places. I just, yes. um, I think that that is really, really very, very cool. And um, it's just a, a wonder. It just, I don't know, it just hit me really strong when you said that. Um, why don't you tell us about, you do some training on Alzheimer's care um, for workers to kind of incorporate their their work into their daily work um, in dealing with yes. patients. Yes. Um, for example, um, I mentioned the adult Sunshine Adult Day Center. In the Peekskill location, people do not have Alzheimer's, but they do have a location in Newburgh, New York, where most of the population in their adult day center do have Alzheimer's. So I went up there a few weeks ago, and I talked about each of the disciplines and um, what kinds of things to make paintings successful, like I mentioned, square palettes. Um, you have to put, put the water in something that doesn't look like a drinking glass, uh, so they're not drinking the paint water um, in certain cases. Um, you know, taking 
taking the brushes and, and kind of guiding person's hands. Now, again, that may be a late stage, but in early stages, I'll take out a, um, a brush and some they'll say to me, can I use a pencil? I say, sure. And so there, this one gentleman who was a doctor at one time, he took this pencil and he started drawing the corner of the room with a ruler so precise. And so one of my biggest messages to uh, those who want to incorporate art into their daily work with Alzheimer's, persons with Alzheimer's, is to say, don't have expectations. Don't say, oh, this person's not going to be able to do that. Oh, I don't think they can do that. That's the the first rule here. Just open it up. See what happens. I have I have people painting for an hour, people who can't sit still for less than five minutes. So just open it up and and again, let them lead. Let them lead. So that's, you know, one of the things we talk about. And often in these workshops, I will have the, the, the workers, they'll have to paint. They'll have to sing. They'll have to do some movements in a chair. They'll have to use musical instruments. They'll go, whoa, wait a minute, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I say, yes, you can. And when you do it, you can impart it in such a more genuine way to those that you work with. So, And then we have often there's a lot of questions and answers and bringing up, I experience this, what do I do with this? Um, and I really feel that you know it's it's helpful because they can feel empowered to take these activities to the people that they work with. Mm-hmm. Really, really important, um, important stuff. Um, Harry, are, are you, um, in terms of listening to this, is there, is there anything that um, you feel uh, Mary could add on to even expand? A lot of times uh, Harry just comes up with great ideas that we don't really Oh, think I'm so of. open, so open to that. I'd love to hear it. One one thing I'd like to do is um, I'd like to watch people do things. Now, they, let me give you an example. I get down to Williamsburg, Virginia, in the Historic Center, and there's there's usually artists down there sitting around painting one of the buildings. And mm-hmm. I love I love sitting there and watching them create this this painting. And I'm fascinated by that. Uh, and it's the same thing when when uh, uh, when somebody's playing music. I love sitting there, and I love just listening and just watching them play this music. I mean, it, it's it's so fascinating to me. I don't have to do, I don't have to do the activities. I'm perfectly True. happy watching somebody else do it. Like, True, uh, and I'm glad another, that you said that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Harry. Another example is um, I love I love woodworking, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's just uh, power tools are unsafe for me now, but that doesn't mean I I lost my love for woodworking, and mm-hmm. uh, my my son-in-law and and daughter they come visit every every Sunday. And uh, my son-in-law and I got into a habit of going down to my shop, and and he got into wood turning. And oh yeah, that's I, beautiful. I, I I sit there, and and we talk, and I just watch him, and it it 
I'm reliving what I used to be able to do. Mm. And it's such a nice, warm feeling that that I don't have to be doing it. I just have to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate what you said. It makes me think of something I forgot to say, Harry. And that is you never want to force someone to come to the art hour and paint. You're not going to force try to force someone to do it. And if they feel more comfortable and more interested to just sit and observe the other painters, that's absolutely fine because that's stimulation in itself. And then to join the group together, I'll start a conversation. Like, what do you think? Like, if you if, say, Harry, there was a group of people painting and you were sitting watching, as you said. There's a conversation there. It's like, Harry, what do you think of that? And, uh, you know, like, so that is so valuable, and if I I would have forgotten to say that, so I appreciate that. You never want to force somebody into an activity, and observing can be just as stimulating and enjoyable. So thank you for saying that. Wonderful. I, I think it's important, you know, when Harry had um, brought up the... Um, you know, the piece about just observing and how important that is um, to to be able to just be comfortable in observing. Sometimes we think everybody has to do something all the time, and mm-hmm. and that's not true. You know, um, very true. Very very peaceful and um, content. And sometimes we we don't allow them um, to just be content being and observing and. Harry's always so good about pointing that out, you know, that we all mm-hmm. all need that and we should all, you know, we all like to just sit and kind of relax and, and observe. Um, we don't always have to be busy um, in, Absolutely. Terms, in terms of that process, and that's just a very, very um, critical, important, important piece to remember when we're dealing with people. I also liked, um, you know, your flexibility of if somebody wanted to use a different medium, if they, you know, um, you're doing watercolors and, and, you know, maybe they they want to use something else, if they want to, you know, draw with a pen or a pencil or chalk or, you know, whatever the medium is, that, that it's open to being flexible and um, being Absolutely. creative. Because that's what art is at its core is um, Absolutely. Being, being creative and being flexible. And so, yeah, very, very important. Uh, thank you. I, I want to mention uh, a question that I get often, and they say, oh, is this art therapy? And although I have studied art therapy in my graduate studies at the College of New Rochelle in New York, um, this is not art therapy as we know it as um as a as a as a sociological discipline that is worked uh in a different way to diagnose etc this is is not that although it's related in certain ways what it is is the engagement of the creative spirit that we all have to as i mentioned earlier to have quality of life motivation um uh just a response to one another, communication, mobility. So I, people often ask that, so I, I did I did want to mention that. Wonderful. Well, um, I can't believe our hour has blown by so quickly already. It's just kind of a, kind of amazing here. Um, I'm just going to put a shout out if we have any listeners that have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can call in at seven one four three six four four seven five seven. That's seven one four three six four four seven 
657 and uh we would love to we would love to hear from you. Any any last comments that you have? Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening um to this important program and uh that Lori brings to you and and also thank you for being here with me today. I want to say that if you'd like to contact me with questions, you can find me on Facebook at ABC Approach to Alzheimer's Awareness and Care Through the Arts. So that's ABC Approach to Alzheimer's Awareness and Care Through the Arts. If you put an ABC Approach, it'll pop up. And also through my name, Mary Crescenzo, as well. I want to tell you how enjoyable and how important and meaningful this was for me to be with you today. And I thank you, Lori, and I, I thank the listeners as well. Um, let's just keep art alive in unlikely places, and thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mary. I really appreciate it. Um, Harry, any last-minute comments that you have? Yes, one thing we have to remember that um, there is life beyond your diagnosis, and the arts play a very, very important role in that. That um, don't don't lose that part of yourself. Be involved in it. So true. second well that is wonderful thank you guys so much um harry um if you wouldn't mind i need to talk with our next guests they're having trouble getting in um on the line here for whatever reason i think there's a problem with the uh with the show with the audio Uh, i'm not quite sure but if you could tell people a little bit after i say goodbye to mary about um forget me nots and your new initiative that would be absolutely wonderful and in Mary, uh, again, our guest was Mary uh, Crescenzo, Z-O at the end, um, doing wonderful, wonderful work with the arts. And I, I appreciate you so much for taking the time. And I'm so thankful that Trin, Trinrose Seeley made that connection. So thank you so much for, for being You're with us You're most welcome. Today. You're most okay. welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Harry, for helping me out there and participating. Thank you. Thank you. And then, Harry, do you mind just kind of telling people a little bit about what you're doing, and then I'm going to see if I can get these other guests on the line. No, absolutely. Now, now you might have to pull the plug on me because once I get gone, you know how I get. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, One one thing I did, when I was diagnosed with with dementia, uh, my life came to an end. And uh, it, did, it didn't take me long to realize that there is life beyond my diagnosis. And I started up a, uh, a blog called uh, MyThoughtsOnDementia.com. And what I do is, is I write down my, my daily thoughts on living this disease. Uh, and um, I... Right or wrong, it's my thoughts. You know, a a lot of people try to correct my thoughts, but you can't do that because they are my thoughts. And then I I started a a group on Facebook called Forget Me Not. And 
I found out in a very short amount of time that that you can't have all doom and gloom on a on a, a dementia site, you know, because you get a lot of people coming on and they discuss the problems, and after a while, it's it's nothing but doom and gloom, and that's not what I wanted. Uh, I wanted a group where people were safe that they were not judged, but I also wanted more, so I I, I created. Various different groups. Uh, I created uh, uh, groups for the different forms of dementia, like uh, FTD, uh, Lewy bodies, uh, uh, vascular dementia. Just kind of each one has special needs, and I wanted the members to be able to talk to people that that they share the same problems with. Uh, I started up a Spanish group. That is strictly Spanish, and it's a uh, it's a spinoff of Forget Me Not. It's a support group, but it's for the Spanish community. Then uh, I also started up various different groups, like or recipe group. Uh, we have a and that's where people send in recipes. Uh, we have a craft and garden group where people get on and talk. Several groups like that just to escape the stresses of dementia. And that, well, that's so important. That's wonderful, Harry. That's that's absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, I, I'm hoping our guests are going to be able to get through here. Um, they've been calling just the, the wrong number, so um, we'll give them a little bit more time to get through. I know Blog Talk is having some issues because something just came up with our engineers are working on audio solutions, So mm-hmm. and that has come up earlier. So I and I can't the way they've got it listed here. I can't call them. So I'm hoping that they're going to be able to to get through um, because they're doing some really cool, cool, cool stuff. Um, just just like you are. These are um, our our next guests. Actually, are two women who met because their husband had dementia. And they ended up writing a book called Singing in the Rain, um, which is they talk about weathering the storm through um, humor and love and, and patience, which is just um, just really cool. And it looks like one of them got through here. So let me see who we've got. Um, it looks yeah, it looks like we've got one of them on the line. So um, they're both here now. So why don't I go ahead and introduce our our next. Yes, here and Harry. I thank you so much for um, being my little co-host here and and helping uh, fill air when we have a <laughs> we have a little snafu, which can happen sometimes with technology uh, can be out of our control. Our next guests are Vicki Rupert, who is a retired microbiologist and a hospital volunteer who used to cuddle babies. And uh, she also is a facilitator for two Alzheimer's Association support groups. She was married for 42 years to her husband, Jim, and uh, who was a school psychologist and a family therapist. She cared for Jim for 19 years with Alzheimer's, um, which was the familial type, the APOE4 gene. And she absolutely loves gardening, traveling, and the beach, reading, visiting her son in New Jersey. And um, she has a three-year-old pocket beagle named Lily. 
And so I'm just going to go ahead and welcome Vicki to the show. Vicki, how are you doing today? Fine, and thank you so much for having us. I'm sorry for the snafu in the beginning. Oh, not a problem. That stuff happens sometimes, so no, no problem. Let me go ahead and introduce Anne here. Um, Anne Hederberg is also a retired um, health field worker and a hospital volunteer. Um, and I love this cuddling babies and patient discharges. Um, she advises members um, of a support group in her senior living community, and she was married for 59 years to her husband, Ralph, um, a model maker for Eastman Kodak Company. They raised four kids, and she cared for her husband, who had Lewy body dementia, for seven years. Um, she also loves to travel and read and overnights with the grandkids. So welcome, Anne. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you, Laurie? Very good. Well, I am just thrilled to have the two of you on. I um, I just think your your tale is so interesting. And the book, you know, that you wrote together, Singing in the Rain, Weathering the Storm of Dementia with Humor, Love, and Patience. And it's just, um, it's beautifully done. And, I, you know, I can't wait to have this conversation because... Um, you know, the disease changes us all in, in so many fashions. Um, but I'm going to throw the first question out to Vicki and ask just, how did, the, how did the two of you meet? You you both had husbands on this journey um, that you, you walked with them. But how, how did the two of you meet? Um, uh, this is Anne. I'm going to uh, start this. Um, well, Vicki and I met in a support group in 2008, uh, we were in the support group for caregivers, and our husbands were in the support group for uh, the dementia uh, people. And uh, we just were very much alike mentally and spiritually. Uh, we both loved to travel. We did all kinds of needlework. We were avid readers, and we especially gravitated to books about dementia. I gravitated to Anne. If there was an empty chair next to her in support group, I was the one that sat there. Something just clicked between us. It was as if we were twins. Sometimes we would finish each other's sentences, or if we were home, one of us would call the other, and it would be just at the time that the other person was getting ready to call us. It was weird. We started meeting with our husbands outside of support group for lunch once a month, but we couldn't talk in front of the guys, so we started meeting for coffee. Then the disease got in the way when we couldn't leave our husbands alone for a long time, and so we started emailing each other late at night when the guys were asleep. And at some point, one of us, and we can't even remember which one, uh, made the comment that our emails were so full of emotion and humor and the day-to-day -day frustrations we were facing that we should save the emails and write a book someday. And in our readings of other dementia books, we rarely found a book that described the wide swings of emotion that the caregiver experiences, including their pitfalls. And because our book is a composite of the last three years of emails sent to each other, it provides a 
really unedited view of dementia caregiving. And we wanted others to know that all the emotions one feels are completely normal given the circumstances. Um, I'd like to read just a brief paragraph from the book, um, and I titled this, as we titled all our emails, this is called The Rabbit Hole. And I wrote, it's going to take me all day to write this. I'm jotting things down as I think of them. Lately, I feel as if I'm falling down the rabbit hole along with Alice and Ralph. And when you're in the asylum 24-7, how long does it take before you become one of the inmates, too? The last past few days, I felt I'm really losing it, sad, depressed, wondering what's the use, wondering if I have any future. And then I got your note about holiday sadness, and I know I'm not alone. Got to go. Ralph is talking to, quote, unquote, someone in the living room. I'll write more later. So that's just a little um, glimpse of the book. Oh, wow. And so you you went and you, you sent that email to Vicki, is that correct? Oh, yes, yeah. This went okay. on almost daily when we could. Okay. Well, how nice to be able to share journeys. You know, um, that that just had to be so helpful. Um, and when you get, when you would receive an, an email like that from Anne, how would you feel and, and how would you respond? Oh, it was it was great to get emails from her, and it was great to pour out my frustrations to her um, when we were. Um, dealing with our own things, and sometimes they were different and sometimes they were similar, but it just was more supportive, and I could uh, let go of my feelings. I didn't have to hold them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing that you're you're not alone, I think it's just always so yes. so important with this, with this journey. Um, I'll throw this out, and we'll just see which one of you wants to answer this question. How did Ralph and Jim relate to one another? You guys seem to, to bond right away, and they they met at a, a day center or, or a support group, I should say. How, how, right, did they, yeah. how did they connect, or didn't they? They did connect. Um, it it was wonderful because while Vicki and I were becoming friends in our support group, they were already becoming friends in their support group. Um, we've, we felt that Jim and Ralph were cut out of the same fabric. Uh, although Ralph was an artist and craftsman, uh, and Jim was a family therapist, but they were both so sensitive and compassionate, fair, and they had great senses of humor. They were devoted to their families, and they, they both loved kids, and, um, and they liked each other very, very much. So it was it was a win win in spite of what we were going through. Oh, and I know. I would think that would make that easier. Is is that correct, Vicky? Did that was that comforting knowing that they were friends? Oh, it was because we when we went out together, we could talk openly about their frustrations that they have with each other. We. Uh, mainly talked about their symptoms and frustrations when they were present. We tried not to voice any frustrations we had with their behavior. 
if they could overhear. That's why emailing our thoughts late at night works so well. But Jim and Ralph related to each other so well. They were always concerned about how the other was doing. Mm-hmm. For for an example, when Jim was in a behavioral nursing home towards the very end, and he could hardly speak understandably, and he really didn't know who I was. He knew I was someone friendly, but he didn't remember me as his wife. I told him that Ralph had placed in a nursing home in order to protect Dan's safety, and immediately the tears welled up in his eyes, and they just rolled down his face. He loved Ralph. Oh, that is so nice. I just want to um, let Ann know that I put you on mute because we can hear you breathing and stuff um, a little bit. And so just if you're trying to say anything, I will pull you back into the conversation here um, on that. So, Ann, I'm going to go ahead and um, is there anything else that you wanted to add regarding Ralph and Jim's relationship? Yes, I did. Um, shortly after Jim was placed in an assisted living fan facility, Vicki had a gathering of friends to celebrate Jim's birthday, and there was much laughter and reminiscing, and um, everyone was so congenial and having a good time, and then Ralph suddenly stood up, and he said he wanted to say something, and my husband was not a public speaker, and he never enjoyed speaking to a group, even in the best of times. And now he was in the throes of Louis Batty, but he needed to be heard. He talked slowly, and but very fluently, about meeting Jim and Vicky and what they meant to him. And then he told about the time recently when the four of us were at lunch and two former co-workers of Jim's came up to our table They told us they missed Jim a great deal, and they praised his skills as a therapist and talked about how he had touched their lives. Ralph said it meant a great deal to him to glimpse Jim as he was before we knew him. Well, others at the party were surprised, but Vicki and I were astounded. He was eloquent and yet brief, and it's just another mystery of this disease. And after we left the party, I told Ralph he could never have given Jim a greater gift. Oh, wow. That just had to have been um, so um, powerful just to hear that and and to to know those. Yes, it was. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, Now, I I understand, Ann, that your husband um, had possible diagnosis of, of Louis body did did that come like right away or you know so many people struggle with getting the correct diagnosis or was there kind of a dance with all of that? Um, kind of a dance. He was uh, he was with an excellent neurologist, but uh, the neurologist said from day one it wasn't Alzheimer's. So sometimes he appeared to have frontal temporal dementia. Sometimes. Um, primary progressive aphasia, sometimes multiple system atrophy, and also the possibility of Lewy body dementia. And it wasn't until after he had died that um, we got the definitive autopsy report, and it was Lewy body. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, but whenever Vicki and I give a talk, I'm always surprised by how many folks have never heard of Lewy body dementia. 
And in the past, it was probably um, just as prevalent as it is now, but it was diagnosed as Alzheimer's. Uh, Lewy body dementia has only been diagnosed as a separate dementia since the late 1980s. And Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease are related in that they share the same defective protein. The Lewy bodies in Parkinson's are located in the brain stem, which causes the motor problems associated with that disease. Well, in Lewy body uh, dementia, they're found both in the brain stem and the cognitive portion of the brain. So basically, Lewy body dementia has the motor problems of Parkinson's disease with the many symptoms of Alzheimer's, too. But there are some distinctive symptoms of Lewy body that are not as commonly seen in Alzheimer's disease. For instance, hallucinations are much more common in Lewy body disease, and they begin occurring early. In Ralph's case, they happen almost daily, and they became part of our, our life. Uh, he saw you know, visions. He saw groups, he, different people um, frequently, and he'd ask me if, if you know, are there some kids up in the tree there? And I'd say no, and he'd say okay, and life went on. And they weren't frustrating, or they were frustrating, but not frightening initially. However, yeah. as the disease progressed, it became much more disturbing. Uh, another symptom more prevalent in Lewy body are sleep problems. Uh, they're common, and they can appear before any other symptoms. Uh, other sleep issues include REM sleep disturbance, thrashing, nightmares, and restless legs. Uh, of course, there is memory loss, as in Alzheimer's, but they also can experience tremors and falls and fainting. They can have bladder and bowel problems. They can become very rigid at times, and they they're, um, they have fluctuating cognition. And most importantly, and I can't stress this enough, they can have extreme sensitivity to antipsychotic drugs such as Haldol. Uh, they can create a condition called neuroleptic malignant syndrome and um, can lead to their death. Uh, so I talk about that a lot in our talks. No antipsychotic drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to read... Uh, brief passage from our book, which will give you a snapshot of living with LBD, and it highlights Ralph's delusions about who I was and how I fit into his life. And um, this was written in uh, 2010, just about a year before he died. Uh, It was a beautiful September day, and we went out for a ride, and we were going to get ice cream eventually. And when we got there, the, the shop was closed, so we started back up home. And, you know, we were probably a good 50, 50 miles from home. But Ralph was having a good day, and everything was fine. And I said to him, why don't we just head back towards home, and we'll stop somewhere for lunch. And he said, fine. But then he suddenly said he felt funny. He didn't want to go to lunch. He wanted to go home. I said, okay, fine. We'll go home, and we'll just stop and get ice cream and Take it with us. So um, this was the conversation between us as we drove um, home. So there are many miles between each um, comment that he made. And he started, he said, what's your name? And I said, Anne, what's yours? He said, I'm not sure. Are you my wife? And I said, yes, and you're my husband. 
And he said, oh, where do you live? And I said, I live in Chilai. And he said, I think I live in Chilai too, but I'm not sure. Then he said, what's happening to me? And I said, you're just a little confused. And I went on trying to orient him. And I said, remember, Dr. D said these things will happen and not to worry about them. Ralph was amazed. He said, you know Dr. D? How do you know him? Dr. D was our neurologist, and I, we both knew him very well. Uh, and I said to Ralph, he's your doctor, and I take you to see him. And he said, I can't figure out how you know him. I'd like to know what's going on. Um, we drove on, and we went through one little town, and I said to him, trying to divert his attention, I said, I got a speeding ticket here once. And he said, oh, so did Ann. Did you ever go to a support group that meets at Monroe Community Hospital? And I said, of course, I go with you. And he said, funny, I've never seen you there. Why, in, why haven't I seen you? And I said, well, your group meets in one room and my group meets in another, and I take you there. He said, take me? Why don't I take myself? Oh, that's right, I can't drive. So after what seemed like hours, we finally arrived at the dairy. I asked him what flavor he wanted, and he tells me, all very rational. And when I came out, it went like this. Ralph said, would you mind dropping me off at my house? And I said, of course, we'll go home now. And on the way, he says, I think you're pretty cute. And I said, I think you're pretty cute, too. And at this point, he starts telling me which way to go, where to turn off the main street, where to turn onto our street, and which house to pull into. Then he says to me, would you like to come in? <laughs> and I said, sure. But I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going to cheat on me with me. <laughs> <laughs> And it went on from there. Um, he was pretty confused the rest of the day. Um, it was not all humorous. It was um, very, very sad because he did uh, get me confused quite often. Mm -hmm. That's so, you know, uh, one of the most difficult things when people can't make that connection of who you are, yet there's such a comfort level. You know, mm -hmm. with, and again, not all the time, because sometimes they're not comfortable when they don't recognize you either. But a lot of times, when there, when there is that comfort level, and yet the the connection isn't there, I, I just can't imagine um, the level of of frustration that's got to be going on with them trying to figure out how do you know, like you said, how do you know all this stuff, and how do you know right. Dr. <laughs> and and um, that's a lot of energy. Um, exerted with that. I'm going to just, um, I, we've got Harry Urban with us today who is living with dementia, and I'm just going to ask him if he has any comments regarding that that piece of, of not knowing um, somebody and, and um, hear from the voice of somebody with dementia who can be with us today. Um, Harry, have you run into that where you just haven't been able to recognize somebody yet sometime with your disease? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh yeah, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here with a lot of emotions because uh, that the, the story she read, uh, I've heard so many times, and uh, it's it's like every time I hear it, uh, it just it just fills me up with the emotion. Uh, one thing she said that 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 really uh, that really affected me is 
is when she says, when she thought about, is her husband going to cheat with her? Mm-hmm. Was something like was something like that, and you know, it's 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 amazing to me that um, even though even though you you might not remember your wife's name or who she is, you connected with her, and mm-hmm. and you know you know that's the person you know, and it, it's so it's so funny you know, some of the stories you said and. You know, it just—I lived them. You know, I—I I lived them, and it—it's uh, oh, it, so wonderful to hear somebody else say the same thing. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Harry. Um, it's always nice to get get Harry's uh, insights um, when we're when we're talking on things like this. Um, now, Vicky, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, Jim and you know because he's got the or he had the familial um, form of dementia and can you tell people a little bit about about that and you know are there concerns you know for family members and, and you know how are you guys handling all that? Yeah, it's it's very tough. Um, originally, um, Jim had a very hard road towards diagnosis and like you said it was APOE4 but we didn't know that that's the gene we didn't know that initially Jim started noticing forgetfulness when he was 45 years old and I started documenting uh, the various instances that scared me and originally they thought that Jim also had ADD, and he had a high IQ, and they thought that his it was his compensating for the ADD by showing some rigidity and, and pressure in dealing with it. So they didn't believe that it was really dementia. And at the time that this was going on, uh, Jim's dad had Alzheimer's and Later on, a few years after Jim started showing signs of dementia, his mother was diagnosed with dementia, but they weren't tested genetically. But since Jim couldn't receive a proper diagnosis, and we knew it wasn't just compensation for his ADD, we went for genetic testing. And not everybody does that, but we really wanted to know what was going on. And when the test came back, they said he had two APOE4 genes. And they also did spinal fluid testing for tau protein, which causes the tangles of Alzheimer's in the brain. And his was very elevated. But the conundrum there was APOE4 is a gene that uh, gives late-onset Alzheimer's, meaning it's after age 65. And here Jim was 45 and presenting with symptoms. So um, they were really not considering the APOE4 to be what his problem was because he was so young and they'd never seen anybody like that uh, at that age. And now, of course, there are a lot more people that, that may have it earlier, and part of the reason why we think he got it so early was because he had two genes, one from each parent. But at that time that we found out he had both genes, his mother had an ex- 
uh, exhibited any signs of dementia yet. It wasn't until after his dad died that they started to come out. And so they said to us, go home and live a good life. You don't have Alzheimer's. And it was so frustrating for us. It took Jim 10 years to be diagnosed um, because of all this. Uh, But we waited two more years after that and had extensive mental testing again and finally went to the head of the department of the memory clinic and he agreed to follow Jim and it was 10 years after the initial symptoms that he was diagnosed as probable Alzheimer's. So it was a rough road for us. And genetically, because Jim has two genes, we have a son and because of genetics, we know that our son has one gene. So unless they find a cure, he'll probably, it's not 100%, but probably have Alzheimer's after 65. Mm-hmm. And did he actually go in and, and take the test, or are you just projecting that? No, has- because Jim had two genes. One goes, one of the two will go to the uh the offspring, so mm-hmm. Kip has to have one. So um, we're just hoping that there are enough of my genes in there because we've never had any familial Alzheimer's. We're hoping that that will work against the gene and maybe our son won't show any evidence of it when he gets to be that age. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to be tested. He doesn't really want to know. And also, you never know how it's going to affect your job security. So mm-hmm. he's just hoping for a cure. Yeah, there's there's so many variables uh, at play. I know um, pretty much any doctor I've ever said uh, talked to, you know, has said that they wouldn't take the test because you don't know if it's going to take or not or when it's going to, but it would definitely change your course. Um, if you want to believe it or not, even on a subconscious level of, of how you lived your life. And, and um, you know, it's just a, it's a tough thing. Um, you know, with my mom, she had it. Um, you know, we're not sure, um, you know, at, at, you know if, if she had the familial gene or not. Um, you know, she refers to my grandma going crazy at the end. Um, but back then, you know, they didn't think, you know, she was just senile and she also had cancer and was on morphine. So we don't really know, um, you know, right. what, what the true history is. And, you know, part of the problem is, too, that the names that they've called this disease have changed over the years. And so that kind of complicates things. And, and uh, depending on what doctors you get to, you know, make a make a big difference, too. Um, does your son have a family at all or...? No, he's not married. He's 40 years old uh, right now, but he's not married. So um, we're just hoping for a cure, and and that that does affect his dating life and everything, you know? Yep, yeah. I'm sure. Pretty deep, um, you know, level of, uh, you know, has to go into everything. And, again, yet you don't want to get trapped. Right. um, minimize your life because of what might be because it also might not be you know there's right and you know he may not ever come down with it depending on the genetics he could be perfectly fine we just don't know yep yep 
How did how did Jim take his diagnosis when he you know when when he first got it? Actually, we were thrilled because we'd had such crazy making going on for uh, so long, and once we got the two genes, even though they wouldn't diagnose them as having Alzheimer's, we knew that was it. And it's shortly after his mom came down with it, so. Um, we just knew, and, and we were relieved that we weren't crazy, thinking that all these things meant something. And and other people were saying, well, maybe he's just too rigid and he needs uh, therapy. Well, he tried therapy, but it wasn't helping at all. Mm-hmm. So we were thrilled. And we did live, live our lives differently. We took our vacations earlier. We did what we wanted to do in retirement earlier um, so that we could spend some quality time doing things we loved. Uh-huh. Well, that's that's good. And, Anne, how did your husband take his diagnosis? I should ask that as well. Uh, again, as Vicki said, you're almost relieved to find out that, yes, there is, a problem, but you're not going crazy. And with Ralph, I would assure him that it wasn't a psychological problem. It was a medical problem, and um, that helped a great deal. Uh, And he had been uh, seeing the, well, I think his primary doctor was the first one that that suggested um, having some tests made. And we kind of pinpointed all this back to when he had some shoulder surgery and anesthetic, and he never really seemed the same after that. And um, in talking with other people in support groups, I've discovered that a lot of people can pinpoint the beginning of symptoms back to when they had, um, you know, some type of traumatic injury or surgery. Um, I don't know if they've put the pieces together yet, but I think they're pretty well aware of the fact that this can uh, be very harmful. Ralph was already in his 70s when he had the surgery, and as I said, things weren't right after that. So uh, the following year, he was definitively diagnosed, and um, and like Vicki and Jim, we first thing we did was book a cruise to Alaska, <laughs> and so we we did a lot of things that we had been putting off um, and um, tried to live as normally as possible. And we had mm-hmm. uh, great times with our kids, our grandkids, and they all understood. And the little ones, you know, they just took it. Grandpa had some problems, but it's okay. We'll help him. And, you know, it was um, was heartening. But Again, you need the caregiver uh, support system because there are times when you really don't want to share what you're feeling about your spouse and you don't want to tell them, you don't want to talk in front of your family or tell your family how you're feeling. You, I could tell Vicki that, you know, there's days when I don't even like him and she understood because she felt the same way. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway. But uh, he took it very well. Uh huh. Yeah, and um, I think in in any marriage, you know, any relationship, you have those times where you don't necessarily like your partner. <laughs> um, but, right. you know, but you don't when, want to when, tell your kids. You, 
<laughs> yep. That you don't yep. like their dad. Yep. And and it's just one of those, you know, this too shall pass, you know, and, and if it's and not that the disease will change in this situation, but you know, it's a matter of, of patience and kind of getting you know, regrounded, and um, in fact, there was a there was a quote in your book. Let me see if I can find it because I had it marked, but I might have lost it. Um, by Mary Ann Radmacher that says, "Courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow.' <laughs> you know, and you know, marriage is is work, and uh, you know, anybody who goes into it thinking that it's not, well, you know." They're going to be in for a rude awakening, but even when you know that it's work, um, sometimes that that work can just be so draining in in various of, yeah. of life. And when someone is ill and and can't comprehend, I mean, it just so changes um, every dynamic, you know, in every situation, and and it can get exhausting. It can get exhausting. Yeah. Um, but I, I would imagine that through this process, and Anne, I'll let you go first, that, that you learned probably some beautiful life lessons that that um, wouldn't have happened maybe without the disease. I think so. I think we both look at uh, life a little differently. You don't You don't sweat the small stuff anymore. You let a lot of things just go. Um, so, and that's a good thing. You concentrate on the positive and and um, the good times, and and we had those good times even when he was, you know, like I read in the book. Even those days, then maybe the next day would be a better day, and um, and we just kept going. Um, but it's it's it a struggle, isolated. it's a journey, and it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry, what? It is isolating, you know, when you normally have your partner as being that person that you go to at the end of the day to share your troubles, and when you can no longer do that because you don't get support from them, um, it it's, makes it so much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there are, are there are wonderful things that we did learn, and I'd never trade this uh, caring for Jim with his Alzheimer's because it taught me so much. It taught me so much patience that I didn't have when I went into it and flexibility of being able to change gears depending on what Jim felt like. And... Uh, I, from the Alzheimer's reading room that I look at a lot, one quote they always had was, always act kinder than you feel. And it's so worth it to do that and putting yourself in your loved one's place because they go through such uh, frustration and fear about what's happening to them. Uh, and don't argue because uh, you'll never win. Uh <laughs> Don't promise that you'll never place your loved one because you may have to, and it's better not to have the guilt that, you know, you have guilt anyway if you have to place them. So don't ever say that you won't place them because you can't promise that. But you try to stimulate them and be open with others about the disease and let your loved one teach others 
what it's like to have memory loss. If you do that and and you're very open with other people, it's a great opportunity for the person with dementia to become a mentor and to show others what it's like, and that preserves their self-esteem so much longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very true. Lots of um, lots of lessons in this. I, I think the, you know... Um, concentrating on the positive and the letting go and, and just enjoying life and uh, you know and you guys have a sense of humor through your through your writing and stuff on here too where um, I mean needless to say there's times where you're you're sad and you're down but you really seem to be able to pick one another up and just um, just be honest in terms of whatever your emotions are and, and that is so healthy, and so many times um, that is not a value um, that people really appreciate or are comfortable with in our society, yeah. uh, but it's so healing, and it's so important because, you, you know, the emotions aren't good or bad, they just are, and we have to process them, because if we don't, they're going to get stuck in us, and, you know, pretty soon we're going to come down with some goofy disease, you know, and <laughs> And, and get sick, you know, and and so it's about you know kind of moving, moving on and and being honest and earnest with with what is happening, and um, to develop a, the friendship that you guys um, have and and what came out of this. I think I think people will really find your book Singing in the Rain. I just love that title, you know, and then even your subtitle <laughs> Weathering the Storm of Dementia with Humor, Love, and Patience. Um, and then you've got this beautiful picture of, um, you know, like gardening boots and a, and a watering pot, and just the simplicity of it is just peaceful, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of, of of looking at it. And and I think you know that's kind of how you have to look at dementia is we we make it so complicated, and you know, complicated just overwhelms all of us in so many fashions. So. You know, keeping things simple to me is one of the the biggest lessons that this disease is here to teach us, you know, to slow down and to appreciate what we have um, and, and, you know, what can still be. And, you know, the, the joy of a smile or a giggle or holding hands or, you know, a caress, I mean, how powerful all those little itty-bitty things are that, you know, in our busy lives we, we forget sometimes. And yeah. all of a sudden... Just the look of connection yeah. that you get sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and just how moving each of those those little moments are and what they mean to you and how they burrow in your heart and your soul. And, you know, you're never, ever going to forget those. You know, they're just... They're, they're just such a deep soul connection, and um, right. you know it's it's not the big fancy fluffy you know big bashy things. It's it's really about the the serenity and the calmness and the joy and those little little teeny moments. You know, my mom always used to say when I was younger, you know, you you can't have a high without a low, and and maybe it's that you know sometimes through disease and illness we have such severe lows, you know, that our highs are, um, I I don't know, to me, even on a real simple level, seem much higher than what they ever used to be. um, Exactly. Because I value them. 
in such a different light. And um, it really takes you out of the rat race. If mm-hmm. you know, you in normal life you will sort of feel like you're on a gerbil wheel, and when you're dealing, when you're a caregiver or when you have dementia, you're taken out of that uh, quick-paced life, and you really have to look at what is important to you about life and your relationships and your friendships with other people as well. And it does make you more appreciative of the small things. Yeah, and I think sometimes we feel like we get off the gerbil wheel and now we're thrown in a maze, (laughs) you know, and you're trying to sort out all the pieces of the disease. And so, you know, but again, when when you look at it from a positive light, when you look at letting go that, you know, hey, I don't really control this, the maze can all of a sudden become a calm, peaceful place to be in terms of knowing that it's okay that you don't know really where you're going because you don't have to control it anymore. And that was one of the biggest gifts, you know, to me was I didn't feel that burden of having to have all the answers and to know I just needed to do the best I could do in the moment that I had, knowing the next moment I can probably do better, you know, and um, and to let go and, and to learn to... Um, forgive yourself too for not being perfect and not always being as good as you would like to be because none of us none of us are and no but but that inner critic tends to beat us up so bad and with this disease I, I learned a little bit more to push that you know, baby aside and say, you know what? I'm doing the best I can. Leave me alone. Give me another chance. You know, <laughs> instead of going, you're yeah. right. I'm an awful person, and you know, kind of going down that rabbit hole of thought, um, because there's not time for that. There's just not time, and you realize how no. precious a moment is, and and so your your focus um, almost becomes laser like in terms of creating and having peaceful, joyful moments and, and not wasting not wasting the time, if that makes sense. I, 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 that's yeah. how it was oh, exactly, exactly. And, again, having a buddy to go through it with you um, can keep you on that path uh, when you start beating yourself up and you share the the feelings with someone else, they're there to say, hey, you know, you're human, it's the way you feel, it's okay, it's normal, and, um, you know, we would bolster each other up. So, you know, we, we are great advocates of having a buddy to go through it with. Support groups are great. Um, we still... Well, I we both still went to the support group after our husbands died, and then Vicky became the facilitator for one of them, and I still attend because you make you make friendships that are unlike any other, mm-hmm. um, and so we never even felt the need to go to a bereavement group because we had each other and we had our support group, and plus we started gathering our emails. Uh, very soon after the, our husbands died, and um, and ironically, as you can tell from the book, they died a day less than a month apart. Wow! And uh, it, which was, yeah, 
almost uh, almost like a TV movie. I think I put it in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. The way they banded and we banded and they died so soon apart and um, you know a month apart and uh, had their services in the same venue and um, that was in the fall of 2011 and we started printing out the emails beginning of 2012 Mm -hmm. so um, and that was very cathartic writing the you know, putting it all together into book form. Mm-hmm. And we did all our own editing. So there were times we would be editing and one of us would be crying and the other one would, would bolster them up because, you know, you're writing passages that you're, as you're writing them, you're reliving them again. Yeah. And um, so there was a lot of tears, but a lot of laughter. And... um it's almost four years, and we're still friends. And I don't—I know we've never had an argument. So maybe Vicky felt like having an argument with me, but she never did. <laughs> so, um, and our families have—she's uh, become part of our family, and uh, and you've become part of mine. Yes. Yes. So. Yeah. So it's some things, a, some positive things can come out of very negative um, happenings. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned, you know, is the support groups and how important they are. And there's all different types from, you know, the Alzheimer's Association has several different types to the memory and Alzheimer's cafes that are out there that are, um, I, I deal with those quite a bit, and it's um, and and like Harry has groups on Facebook where people become instantly just intimate friends um, because you know you're divulging just such personal things about yourself and how you feel, and and most of the times we have a mask up, you know, with the real world, and we don't share those types of things. But there's a there's a safety in numbers. Um, and knowing someone who truly understands and and being able to have that confidant, that trusted person is just, um, it's it's unbelievable to help in that, uh, remove that isolation and to give you strength and just give you space to be whoever you need to be in the moment. um, Exactly. And it must have... It must empower you, Lori, to do what you do and bring so many people together um, so that they can feel less alone and they can learn. And it, it must be really energizing for you to, to do this program and, and everything else. Oh, you know, I absolutely love my job. And, you know, I, I started it because I did feel so isolated I and I felt... My whole family felt isolated, you know, and I still think even though in the last, I'm going to say five years, things have really changed, even in the last year. I mean, we're seeing a lot more articles. We're seeing much more coverage about the disease. We are are leaps and bounds from where we need to be and and that we need people to understand that there are, there's so much help out there. Um, in different forms, you know, different mediums, your your book, there's films, there's, you know, short YouTube videos, there's presentations on one-on-one, there's 
um, large organizations. There's um, small, you know, little companies. Um, we've got people like Mary, who was our our first uh, guest. Um, yes, Crescenzo, who is is touching people through art, and she's working both with those with dementia as well as care partners. And um, I mean, the list just goes on and on. The musicians that are creating music around this. Um, it's endless. The researchers, you know, and people need to feel that hope. They need to feel the power of of what one person can do, you know, and, yeah. and how it can be shared and how it can help and um, getting people to understand there there is no one answer, you know. And no. so it's a matter about getting educated in a um, in an everyday, I think, casual manner that makes us feel comfortable so that we can grow, you know, and, um, you know, the academic things are fine, but I think for most people who, you know, if they've got dementia or if they are caring for somebody with dementia on a personal level, you know, they just want this casual conversation and, and the safety to do that and, um, you know, to to find the resources and to be supported and, not necessarily for anyone to fix it, but just to know you're not alone. I, I, to me, that's right. huge, massively yes. huge. I, uh, Vicki and I receive feedback letters from people that bought the book, and some of these people are on the West Coast. They're, we corresponded with some people in Texas, and and. They've all pretty much said the same thing. They they thought they were alone until they read the book, and it was like a light bulb went off, and they realized that what they were feeling was normal, and they were so happy to have somebody that would really that we really told it as it was because we're telling it as we're living it, and um, it wasn't something that we thought about and wrote about something that happened in the past we would write about it every day and um and we didn't sugarcoat and uh, we were pretty honest with everything and um and that's what's pleased us is the feedback from people that um felt so alone and that they felt they had, uh, and some people have written and went out and found a buddy, so, mm-hmm. and they write and tell us about that and how much easier life is when they have um, become really close friends with someone that's going through the same thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a it's a really interesting process and. Um, you know, and journey, and it's it's such an honor, you know, to do work like like you know with your book, and then to hear how it's touched people and eased their journey, and made it more more comfortable for them. I'm gonna just pull Harry Urban in real quick. We've got about five minutes left. If Harry, do you have any comments to what you've heard so far? Yes, it is. There's, there's a strong belief that there's. There's no survivors of dementia, but I think I think these two women prove that there is. Uh, no matter how much hardships they went through uh, and everything else, caring for somebody with dementia, it didn't it didn't scar them. They they had nothing but but happy thoughts of their life, 
And that, that's so important uh, because uh, so many times this disease, it, it drags down the caregiver and it scars them for life. And they are they are a victim of the of the disease, but but they prove that that you can be you can live through the hardships of it, and you can come out happy people. That's mm-hmm. true, oh, thank Harry. You. That's uh, that's so kind of you to say. Um, it's very moving. And, and, um, and we wish you well, Harry. Thanks for being part of the program. I, um, yeah, and I think it's great that he's being a part of your message, Laurie, um, because, you know, I think probably 20 years ago, this disease was hidden in the closet the way cancer was 50 years ago. Nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um and nobody talked about their parents or their spouse that had dementia. They would kind of hide it as long as they could. And Ralph was so open. He would tell people, he would tell clerks in the store, you have to be patient with me. I have dementia, and I I need to understand. And um, it, he was he was never ashamed of it. And I think... In years past, people were, and um, I'm sure that still goes on. Mm-hmm. So I think a light is being shed on it at this point, and from all different directions, like you were just saying, all the different um, ways that yeah. we're changing the whole attitude about dementia. Yeah. Well, I can't. I can't thank you both enough for. Um, sharing your lives with us and writing such a beautiful book and in the back you you know you you share in the beginning you share a lot of your correspondence but then you you have specific advice and um things that you give people um and some resources and stuff which is great about picking a doctor or making a move and you know what should you look for um, so lots of just lots of good good stuff. Um, having a safety evaluation of your home, the best defense is a good offense, you know, and you, you tackle different topics within that. Um, now I've got so the best way uh, for people to reach you is through your email, and that is the raining. Is it? I'm sorry. No. Nope. It's the rain group press. Is that correct? Oh, at gmail.com, yes. Yep, okay, the Rain Group Press. Group at G- Press. Yep, uh-huh. Group Press at gmail.com. Um, or and they you can, can also they can also write to us. Uh, we have a blog that um, where we talk about the book, and they can also order the book from besides Amazon, mm-hmm. and that's www.survivingdementiacaregiving.com. And there's a mail portion to that that they can write us, and we will respond. Wonderful. Well, I, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time to be with us today. Again, I would encourage people to to get this book called Singing in the Rain, um, Weathering the Storm of Dementia with Humor, Love, and Patience by Vicki Rupert and Anne Henderberg. And it's 
um, it's just beautifully done. And I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to connect through this journey and that your husbands were able to connect um, because you just share such uh, such beautiful information with people. And, um, again, that, that's so valuable. I mean, you can't even put a price limit on it. So, um, you know, thank um, you again, and I, I wish you um, all the success in the world. Um, with sharing your voice in the world. And thank, thank you, you, Laurie, for having us both on. We really appreciate it. You're doing a oh. wonderful thing there, and I've become a member of the Purple Angel Project. So wonderful. Well, that's great. <laughs> great. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. You guys have a great week. And, yeah. to and, our and I want to thank you, too, Laurie. Um, uh, it's it's been a wonderful experience, and uh, thank you for your kind words, and um, we really appreciate that. Okay, wonderful. You have a great week, and we will talk to all of you next week. We're going to be talking about creating dementia-friendly communities. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.